Hello and welcome to What We Talk About When We Talk About Tech, a podcast about tech storytelling and the words and narrative shaping the future. I'm Rich Gull. You can follow me on Twitter at Rich G Gull. And as always, I'm here with my co-host Jennifer Riggins. You can follow her on Twitter at JK Riggins. And we're really excited to share this week's episode as we have a guest that I think if you asked me in January when I was coming up with the idea for this podcast, she would have been one of my dream guests, I think. Someone who I think really aligns with the ideas in this podcast and some of the things that we've been talking about over the last few months. She is Sarah Drinkwater, who is the Director of Responsible Technology at Amidia Network. Um, Amidia Network is also a really interesting organisation that invests lots of different projects and individuals, startups uh, all around the world that are doing interesting things with technology, positive things, cutting edge things, but in ways that are ethical and yes, responsible. Uh, Sarah was also the head of Google's first physical startup hub, which was called Campus London. And she's had a really interesting career. She's also done some really important thinking around what ethical tech is, what it should look like, how we can build a more responsible technology ecosystem. So we're going to talk about that over the next 45 minutes or so. Uh, We'll also go into what Omidia Network is and what it does. I think you'll find that really interesting. But first off, let's uh, allow Sarah to introduce herself. I guess the best place to start is for you to sort of introduce yourself as you normally would and kind of give a sort of overview of who you are and what you're doing at the moment. Thank you. So I work at Amidia Network. I co-lead a team focused on responsible technology. What does that mean? It means that we're pushing for a tech ecosystem that is equitable as well as innovative. By background, I am a community builder, a technologist, an entrepreneur, and a storyteller, having also been a journalist early in my career. So the theme of this podcast, how we should boundary the word technology itself, how we should think about tech, how we should talk about tech, recognizing that all of these words and stories shape the industry as we're building it is of incredible interest to me. So to kind of expand a bit more on your background, could you talk a bit more about, yeah, sort of how you sort of found your way into tech and kind of what your experience sort of was? So before before we sort of start recording, you said you have a sort of humanities background. I wonder if you could talk a bit about sort of working across tech and the humanities and also kind of where your curiosity and interest sort of emerged in tech. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, I grew up in the 80s and 90s with a dad who's a self-taught developer. You know, he basically began taking radios apart and ended up self-teaching himself to code. And he's worked in the space for like 40, 30 years or so. And so that's the kind of background context is I grew up in a house that was very tech savvy for the 80s. You know, all of my siblings work in technology in some form, but certainly in the 80s and 90s, and I, I still worry about this now, there was very much a divide between arts and science. And I went down the arts route, you know, got my two arts degrees, spent most of my 20s in journalism at the time that digital journalism was becoming a thing and ended up just seeing so much opportunity in sort of early stage startups that I wasn't for freedom and for kind of ownership of work that I frankly wasn't seeing in journalism, which at the time was still, and I believe still is highly hierarchical. So for me, a core part of my curiosity was I want to do stuff. I want to build stuff for myself. I want to have power and ownership. And I think, I think what was interesting, you know, I began working for a couple of early stage startups and then founded one that didn't work out and then went to join a quite established one that we then sold. And then after that was hired by Google. And I think what was interesting in the first probably five companies up to and including Google when I first joined is 
I was the first non-technical hire in every single team and I was the first woman. And that is a, a complicated place to be. I think, I think now, I think this, you know, we're living in this ever complicated world. And to me, working across difference is the number one thing that any leader should be thinking about, that any of us should be thinking about as we kind of navigate the world. And for me, that was an incredible training in that because ultimately, if you're not trying to make something happen in an engineering team, rightly or wrongly, it was on me to kind of work out how to gain the buy-in, how to gain the trust, how to be able to do my work. And so a lot of my curiosity was around the original promise of technology. How can this be truly liberatory? How can this kind of democratize access? You know, I think we know now that technology, and I'm using the term in its broadest, you know, we can debate what tech is. That's a very long conversation, but um, I'm using the, the term in its broadest sense. A lot of what tech promised us in the 80s and the 90s when I was a kid, certainly like, you know, you think about the dawn of the web, you think about John Perry Barlow, you know, all of these iconic moments that I think were positioned as liberatory, but actually kind of a bit more cynically marketed than that. I love that idea. And I still cling to that idea. And that's why I do the work that I do. I don't do the work that I do because I hate tech as a whole. I think some elements of the industry are not great and need changing, but I have a lot of energy for what tech can and should be because it's right in front of us and we just need to work towards it. And so I guess my background being kind of a community product builder, like all of my working career, I've brought people together. I've tried to kind of build consensus. I've tried to help activate new stories, uh, reshape existing stories. And that's led me to kind of where I am now. You know, I'm now sitting in a funder. So part of my job is making grants to organizations that I believe are doing market leading work in this space. You know, um, New Public, Zebras Unite, uh, like all these organizations out there doing the good work alongside all of the tech accountability practices that I love. And part of my job is helping those organizations most of which are very small and not still early in their funding journey, go faster together. Something you said that I thought was interesting is talking about getting tech buy-in from a team, especially mm -hmm. as someone that all three of us on this call have more journalistic than technical backgrounds, more creative than code. How do you manage that, especially when, because of this, tech has a huge levers problem, Yeah, especially with marginalized people, especially with women, especially with people of color, people from different backgrounds. When people are dealing with that battle every day, which is yeah. that battle, and they're deciding whether to leave or not, how do you find that energy to make that argument? And how do you make that persuasion? Yeah, I think it's, you know, for better or for worse. And I, I keep coming back to this word power. I think it's my obsession this year. Like we're all living in these structures the whole time that perhaps are less visible to us. And particularly if you're working in a B2C company, the coding team is the power engine. In a B2B company, often it's sales because they're the people that interface with your customers. So I think for anyone coming into a tech company, you know, where does the power live? Beyond the CEO who directs the company, often historically it's lived with the coders because they can build the thing. And I think coding has had this you know, in the in the 40s and 50s, coding was done by women because the, the punch cards were small. It was thought that our hands were more appropriate. And over time, as innovation shifted from kind of hardware to software with the 80s and 90s and the personal computer, women got pushed out of that role. They were, you know, all of a sudden coding became cool and a thing. And now there's all this really interesting evidence showing that coding could become the next blue collar job because coding has been so democratized, because we're seeing no code, no code tools, you know, because we're seeing all of these government led and private programs designed to get everyone coding. I think what's interesting about that is a couple of things. One is that, you know, it demystifies what coding is because for anyone who's done a bit of coding, it's not that hard. So there's, there's a, we need to critique the fact that power lives with this team only. But I think secondly, we need to kind of recalibrate what makes a company work. Like obviously the product is a thing, like how do you build the thing? But beyond that, I think every role is so valuable. It's like an orchestra, you kind of work together. I think what's important, like what, what what's worked for me is understanding 
What's the thing that we have in common that we want to achieve together? And that's been a very useful tactic for me in terms of building buy-in, understanding the other person's motivation. But I think also for anybody with any privilege in the workplace, and I say this both for myself, but also for the many allies out there, you've got to use that voice to help other people. So having been running teams for... 12, 15 years now, the minute I began having the ability to hire, I always built highly diverse teams. I've always worked to build teams that not only reflect the customer base, but can really help the rest of the organization better think about who they are. Because, you know, I think if you're hiring in really talented, marginalized folks, and you're not constantly supporting them, championing them, helping them get the roadblocks out of the way to do their job, there's just no point they're going to leave. And, you know, I always think about anybody hitting their 40s or so, particularly because that counts as super senior in tech because we're stupidly young as an industry. you got to think about who you want to be. Like as a leader, as a coach, as a manager, part of your job is to get other people free. So we'll kind of get into some of those quite meaty topics in a minute. But before we go any further, I just wanted to ask you about your current work at Amidyar Network, Singular. Yep. Yeah, I wanted to ask you kind of what Amidyar is and kind of what you do there as well. Yeah, so we've been going for almost 20 years. We were founded in 2004 after um, Pierre Amidyar sold eBay. And I think eBay is a really interesting internet company because it's, it's, it's built on the notion that people are essentially good, that you can buy something like a TV off a stranger, you will get your TV, they will get the money, it's a fair exchange. And I think he, you know, when Amidyar Networks was founded, it was founded on that principle. And a lot of our early work, like the first 15 years, was very much impact investing around areas like education, financial inclusion, particularly civic tech and government, because that's something that Pierre has a very strong interest in. But after the last election, I think it became clear the last, as in the first Trump election, sorry, 2016, keep forgetting we've had another one since then. I think it became clear internally that investing in companies, you know, we've always done nonprofit and for-profit work. We've always had the ability to financially be very flexible with our money, that that work alone wasn't enough. And that we had to be thinking about policy. We had to be thinking about shifting narratives. We had to be thinking about coalition building. So a lot of those impact investing teams kind of span out and we're now a 60 person organization. And we sit in this unusual space where we are philanthropy, a lot of our work is like kind of impact investing still, but a larger part is far more about social change. And the the, the terms are a bit messy. You know, we, we now call ourselves a social change venture, which I find a bit opaque and hard to get, but that's the phrase that we've determined kind of makes best sense. But within that, we have two core themes. One is around reimagining capitalism, because I think, you know, we realize without, without really looking at the kind of economic incentives and the systems that we live in, we're never going to have true equality. We're never going to have true fairness. We're never going to get free of a lot of these, a lot of these isms that I think really ruin our society. And particularly on my side of the house, I co-lead Responsible Tech. There's 16 of us, a very small team. And a thread of our work is really around the work that my co-lead runs is really around smarter policymaking. So how do you set the rules of the road at a governmental level in a way that checks the power of the largest companies of our time while also not getting in the way? You know, we still believe in innovation. We still believe in competition. At the same time, a lot of what the fan companies are doing is pretty egregious. And I think we need better regulation to fit this moment. And then so much more of the work that I lead is around working with technologists to be thinking about the future. You know, not just helping tech workers speak out, push back, whistleblow. I think that's very important. But also um, when we check the power of these large companies, what lives in its wake? And there are all these amazing people kind of working to rethink ownership at a startup level, um, rethink the stories that we tell around leadership. And I think I think Basecamp's demise is a beautiful example of, of how we need to reimagine how we talk about leaders in the first place and how we talk about experiments. But so... Much of our work is about finding and funding great entities doing market-leading work in the, in the US and Europe who are technologists, but also 
you know, I have activist um, grantees like Coworker. I have academic grantees like Sophia Noble at the UCLA Center for Urgent Internet Inquiry. So much of the work that I'm doing is helping technologists, people that have the ability to build companies. And by that, I mean a very broad swathe. I'm not just talking about engineers. I'm talking about engineers, PMs, marketers, all the skills that go up into making the tech ecosystem a thing. Helping this group understand doesn't have to be like this. It's all very interesting because it looks like with all due respect, your co-lead's job sounds harder because <laughs> I think the Kool-Aid and the goals of the organizations you're finding and supporting, they've already drunk the Kool-Aid and they actually believe in it. While I think the policy yeah. side is much more basic educating people that are not digital natives that are deciding policies. It's funny you say that because I think in my last job at Google, I was running a space for entrepreneurs and some of that job involved meeting with policymakers. Like part of my job was I was the intermediary between the startup community and the government um, with the kind of guidance of my policy colleagues at Google, because this is not my bread and butter. And it took me some time to realize that I was running these roundtables to help government learn from startups. And I'd, I'd really bought this myth that government can't innovate, that government for the most part is staffed with a certain kind of person. And to be honest, what I, a lot of what I learned in that job is that that notion was incorrect. So I definitely hear you. Policy is a more is a more built up field but i would argue there are a lot of you know you look at what's happening in the us right now and with the eu ai regulation guidelines coming out the threat of regulation is something on the horizon for like a very long time finally we have something to respond to you know when biden is hiring in tim wu and lena khan he means business but i think you know what i what i think about is you know, you do need there to be more overlap between the tech and the policy worlds without there being capture, because I think large companies always want to capture the narrative. But there's established kind of frameworks for how we think about policy change, how we think about lobbying. I would argue that in our world, it's still very early. Like, like I think sometimes our imagination gets really captured by what's in front of us. And so I look at Zebras Unite, for example, who were a grantee of ours last year, and they've built this very powerful identity for entrepreneurs who are very resistant to kind of VC funding. So their notion is that unicorns, companies valued at a billion or more, aren't real, and zebras are. And zebras make money and do good at the same time. They are mission-led, they're mutualistic. And, you know, these are companies that don't want to scale in then sort of conventional tech terms. They want to build sustainable businesses at the same time as not being lifestyle businesses. That's a kind of nasty term that the early stage scene has come up with to kind of talk down certain kinds of company. And I think zebras have found that there is just a very, you know, they will always attract the right community to them. But there is a very dominant narrative in the startup scene all over the world. And this to me is very interesting, having worked with startup communities a lot outside the US. So like my focus at Google was communities and like uh, in Seoul and Sao Paulo and Warsaw and Tel Aviv, all these places that had drunk the Silicon Valley Kool-Aid and are gradually realizing in time, there is a reason Silicon Valley is its own place. It does its thing really well. There's a lot to criticize there. There's a lot to love there. These two things can be true at once. But, you know, you're not going to recreate Silicon Valley in Birmingham. You have the opportunity to build something totally specific and local and powerful there. And this is what I find exciting is I feel like we need to let go of some of these macro stories and get comfortable creating our own at smaller scale. And so I think I hear you that the policy work is you know, I love what I do and I think I'm very excited by it. But I do think there's exciting work on both sides of the house, you know, to to navigate and weave the needle, putting into law some of this work that is, you know, you look at content moderation alone. These are really hard choices and trade-offs. I think that is God's work. And I'm an atheist, so I don't know why I use that reference, but I think it's I think it's critically important work. But at the same time, I think our work, you know, I think the work kind of you need to have both sides. I think one without the other would feel imbalanced to me. 
Absolutely. Yeah. I just think one is harder than the other. Maybe it's always, <laughs> I guess what you described though, is when we hear policy, I think maybe yeah. the American lens living in formerly the EU, I look at it as larger entities and yeah. what it comes down to is it like all things in the future, maybe the city is the role that has to play and the city will be the leaders in this. In, in yeah. Keeping- And there are so many good examples of that, right? Like, you know, you look at San Diego, where a coalition of civil society organizations, uh, and again, civil society is one of those terms I've never really understood. But all of these community groups got together to say, actually, we don't want facial recognition tech in San Diego, because it doesn't serve us. You know, in Sacramento right now, they're debating a bill called Silence No More, that our advisor of Fomorazoma has has co-written and is championing. You know, and this is a bill that will basically for the two of you, when I, something that is hard to understand outside of tech, you sign these very stringent NDAs. And for a long time, leaking was the term that was used if you kind of broke them. When, you know, now we know that by its proper name of kind of whistleblowing. But so this, a couple of years ago after Me Too happened, the law changed in Sacramento to kind of free women who'd kind of gone through um, sexual harassment or kind of gender-based discrimination could break their NDAs. You know, and it happened in Hollywood, but because tech is headquartered in California too, it had massive knock-on effects for the tech workforce, partly because tech companies have one NDA for all the US. So this case, the Silence No More Act, is really focused on kind of freeing up workers who experience any other kind of discrimination, including kind of race-based, age-based, all of the other kinds of nasty things that can happen inside companies. And so obviously massive knock-on effects for tech, but also knock-on effects for kind of Hollywood, for all the domestic workers in California. And this is something being debated in Sacramento in one city. But, you know, I think cities have power because they, if you look at the UK, having been a very happy Londoner for like a long time, there are certain decisions London takes that are different to other parts of the UK and, and communities get to kind of set their own parameters around what, you know, what we are okay with, what we're not okay with. I think there needs to be better mechanisms for how citizens participate in these in these decisions. But at the same time, I'm, re- I'm really heartened by examples like San Diego because it reminds me change doesn't always have to be you know, when I think of policy, I also sometimes think of these massive institutions having to move, but I don't know whether it always has to be like that. You know, if Sacramento, if Sacramento passes, there's a strong chance it will nudge other states. There's a strong chance it might nudge the country level politics to kind of move in that direction too. Okay, to take a step back then, as we're getting ahead of this grander vision of yeah. legislating responsible tech, tech is all about moving fast and breaking things, including the earth. How, what is responsible tech and how do you factor that consequence scanning into an agile sprint into a consideration of a company that is trying to scale or is trying to grow quickly or just stay alive even? Well, I think, I think part of the answer is in your question, right? There are challenges around what makes sense for a three-person company is very different from what makes sense for like a five, five, take Amazon versus a startup. If you're a startup, your number one thing is, oh my God, I might fold tomorrow and with it, all of my dreams and my salary and my team salary. So like, it's, it's a very consequential thing that you have to move fast. But for an Amazon sized company, it's so confusing. You know, the only end game is more profit, right? And I think that's, that's something I think we have to, when we talk about responsible tech, for better or for worse, we have to think about incentives. You know, if you're Amazon, you know, you look at what happened in Bessemer, you know, my hope is that the motivation for an Amazon to do the right thing, and I think Amazon is a very poor example in this case because they've shown they don't really care. There's the reputational risk, all the stories that come out about the labor rights issues with their workers, incredibly off-putting for me as an ex, you know, as a now ex-customer. I guess when I think about responsible technology, 
I believe the best definition will come from, you know, I don't believe that I'm the best person to kind of set my parameters. I have my own version of what responsible tech looks like. You might have different ones. And I don't believe that one definition is kind of better or worse than the other. I think we have to create this vision of what tech can and should be as a group. I come back to this word liberatory an awful lot right now, you know, partly because I've been thinking about what are things that we commonly agree are good in a company. And I think one thing that we agree is good in a company is inclusive. Like I think we we have commonly agreed diverse teams are, be- diverse teams are better, which is why it's so frustrating that not, not only are teams not diverse, but so often safe workplaces are not creative for black and brown employees. I think increasingly we're really, we're really looking for, I think the the sustainability point you make is very important because ultimately something that I think the the general public do not understand enough is the sheer level of kind of natural extraction happening, you know, the cobalt mines in the in the developing world. I think there are so for example, my new Apple charger arrived this morning and it's this beautiful, seductive white box. And you know what Apple are like, they sell you like one piece and you have to buy like three pieces together. And it, you know, they do that so that you buy more things. And it turns up and it's it's quite hard for me as a consumer to make the connection between this beautiful white box all the way to the supply, ch- through the supply chain to kind of where that comes from and what the implications are for the person making it or the, the, the many people making it. You know, in the same way that when you buy fast fashion, I still feel like I'm particularly fussy about the clothes that I wear, partly because I think the press has done a great job of helping me understand who is the kind of M person suffering. I guess when I think about responsible tech, the reason I'm fudging this answer slightly is that I feel like there is no one answer. There are a multiplicity of answers, which I find incredibly encouraging because I think tech told us it was one thing, but so often we've kind of centered on the product in the middle when actually humans are super diverse. You know, the way that we live is if you look at the kind of multiplicity of ways a person can be or a society can be, to me, that's incredibly encouraging. And massive tech platforms tend to kind of flatten that individuality out. You know, they tend to flatten out the fact that we live in societies and communities out. They think of us as kind of widgets on a page. And I just resist that definition quite a lot. So I guess um, when I think about what responsible technology looks like, it's technology that centers our individuality, our societies, our dignity. It gives us the same kind of connection and convenience that I think we've come to expect and perhaps take for granted. But I think there are some very core elements around values that that get missed. And this is where, you know, so much of the funding work we've done has focused on shifting the culture of technology itself, which seems incredibly grandiose and impossible. But I think that without having, you can make as much product change as you like, but without there being a sort of a core change in the company culture, you're never going to ask the right questions internally. And so much of this work is really around encouraging people to not just read the press and freak out, but understand their agency. You know, if you're working in a team building a product, it can be really hard to ask a question. It can be really hard to kind of speak up. Like I can remember multiple times where I spoke up and got punished for it in some way or another. Not recently, but certainly early in my tech career where I would ask a question about what does this mean for wheelchair users? You know, just like a very simplistic question. And that question was kind of shut down. And I think not just are we seeing the kind of new graduates coming now into the industry demanding to kind of bring their whole self to work. You know, they have a very different way of thinking about the spectrum of gender, which I love and I'm educated and inspired by all the time. But I think if I'm a smart leader now, I'm going to be looking to the most junior members of my team to help me understand how society is changing. And I'm going to be helping, I'm going to be asking them to help me work out how do I launch my product in a way that doesn't reputationally damage me, that doesn't result in talent loss. You know, and I think if you're if you're a leader now, the base camp example should be striking the fear of God into you because ultimately it's like they put out an ill-advised statement that they hadn't told the team about first and they lost half their staff in a week. So hiring people is really hard. 
takes a lot of time. In a 60-person company, that's a lot of institutional knowledge. You know, nobody wants to have to hire half of their company. That is even more scary than regulatory risk. That is even more scary than press headlines to me as a, as a manager of people. So I guess there is some slowness involved in doing the right thing. But I think slowness is a quality that we miss in our life anyhow. Like, I think that's been the biggest benefit for me of the last year is having time to think about, okay, what do I want to do? You know, does this really have to be out the door tomorrow? Or can I have an extra two days to kind of think about it? So I would argue that even Facebook have now stopped using move fast and break things. I would argue that the more conversation we have, the more trust is built in our teams, the more encouraging people to kind of speak up, the more challenging our own assumptions and beliefs. I've very rarely seen Tim teams do things very fast and not get something critically important wrong. So that, that actually kind of brings me quite nicely on to storytelling and language. And you mentioned agency just now, which is a word I keep coming back to in relation to tech that I don't think we really sort of think about enough or isn't talked about enough. So I, I was kind of wondering if you could dig a bit more into the role storytelling and language can play in I guess, sort of re-emphasizing agency, I guess, or restoring agency and sort of, I think, brings, I guess, you know, to my mind, I think storytelling and sort of narratives when used properly can can kind of, it sort of brings an element of like contingency, I guess, in the tech that things can be different, that they're not just like naturalized things that exist that you have no control over. But yeah, I was wondering your thoughts on that. Oh my God, so many thoughts. I remember Tom Hume at Google Ventures said to me years ago, stories are SEO for the mind. And that's one of those phrases that like seared into my brain and has never left, proving the case. When you think about how tech is conceived, and I think there's a really, a Fred Turner wrote a great book called From Counterculture to Cyberculture, looking at the kind of cynical remarketing of technology in the 80s and 90s, which I'm quite fascinated by, you know, this kind of military industrial American thing that came out of the the post-war periods, the kind of Cold War, etc. It kind of got rebranded as emerging from the Californian counterculture in a way that factually is not really true. So I think one thing we have to counter with when we're thinking about technology and stories is that, you know, particularly for those of us that grew up in the 80s and 90s, we were really sold a story of what tech was. And I'm thinking of like the, the office of the future, beanbags, remote work, intense benefits. Um, you know, I, and I spent years getting my free massages at Google and it was amazing. But it's like um, part of what was involved in that story was the notion that you could make a lot of money and be working in a, you know, you could make socially positive, you know, you could basically make money and do good at the same time. And I think we know that the scale of money technologists make is pretty out of whack. You know, it pushes the average salaries up in certain cities. It kind of flattens out certain areas of work entirely. And so I think when we when we think about stories, we have to kind of understand the gap between what the story is and what we actually observe. And this is where I think a lot of the powerful tech accountability workers come from is people have been able to speak up because there is a gap between what companies say they are and what they actually are. But when I think about agency, particularly, you know, a core part of that story of what does tech work look like 15, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, even, is that the work was meaningful. You know, you joined um, a startup or a large company and what you did really mattered. And I think we're now in this really interesting moment where I just thought of a story, but I probably, so a friend of a friend, shall we say, has been doing a consulting gig with Facebook. And what was fascinating to me is that this person's whole job, six weeks of their time, well-paid time was to deliver a deck telling the internal team what to do. 
And I was fascinated by this because I'm fascinated by consulting as a whole because I don't understand it. You know, you're paying a lot of money and you're there telling you what to do. It's like, well, why don't you know what to do? That's confusing. And it made me realize how disempowering it must be to work in many tech roles and many tech companies now. You know, you're sold this idea of empowerment, but actually the work you're doing is not meaningful. And I always come back to that quote that says, the greatest minds of my generation are working on getting people to click ads because that's where a lot of people are now. So I think when we think about agency, I would always go back to what does true agency look like? It looks like living up to your values. It looks like owning your time as well as your energy. It looks like working on something that is personally meaningful to you. And that's where I think we can create new kinds of stories of what tech work looks like. You know, I've seen so many friends kind of leave jobs that sound fantastic, but actually are hyper-political and actually not doing a lot of interesting work and go and start something of their own, something different, something designed in opposition. You know, I'm thinking of um, my friend, Andrew Eland, who, who I work with very closely at Google Maps. His new startup, Diagonal, is basically helping cities better plan what they do next in a way that is hyper-transparent, participatory, so citizens can be more involved, ethical use of data, And this company is designed to be small scale. They're not looking for VC funding. They're not looking to kind of grow 10x. That is totally contrary to kind of who they are. And I think he's still working on an incredibly exciting technical project that has deep social good with a team of people that he loves and admires. And I think it's it's those kind of stories. Okay, what is the purpose of tech? Is tech the end in itself? No. What's the end in itself is us, people living happier, healthier lives, doing our thing, getting off the screens and onto the streets. You know, that that's what is more exciting to me, I guess. So the job of us storytellers is to connect the human side. And I've always looked at translating too, because do we have any clue what is happening behind the curtain? Well, I think, yeah. I mean, I think translation roles are critically important. And I think one part of that is storytelling. And one part of that is bringing different people together to to help them tell their story, right? I think it's very different being the storyteller versus enabling the storytellers. And I guess... There are so many ways of thinking about stories in tech. You know, one obvious one is like the role of whistleblowers. Like how do we outside these big systems understand what's happening? People who are able to speak up and tell the truth are critically important. I think the second one is stories about new forms of technology. But a third one that I think is quite important that is quite hard to get right in my head is what tech is now is so hard to conceive. You know, I've always thought about it as like a membrane of like norms and standards. You know, you have these companies that kind of set the pace for all the rest of industry. You know, there was this hilarious, much debated thread on my Twitter yesterday with uh, some kind of machine learning guy from Facebook being like, every company is a tech company, Walmart's a tech company. You're like, well, actually, no, it's not. It's a retail company that is enabled by tech. And so, you know, the years ago, it was like software is eating the world. And I think now we're at the point where it's like software has eaten the world. And we have to reckon with what does that mean? You know, we now have some of these conventional tech norms. You know, you look at the way track and trace was rolled out in the UK. And that's a classic example of like, oh God, why would you? It's a very different thing launching a poorly conceived app designed for something stupid to launching it around coronavirus. Those are intuitively very different use cases. And we have to understand, okay, the move fast break things maybe was fine 10 years ago when the companies were inconsequential and focused on sort of something as silly as college students getting to know each other. But now when so many of the use cases are critically important for our democracy, our health, our connection, you know, thinking of, you know, for better or for worse, Amazon helped a lot of people get groceries when they wouldn't have been able to get them during a pandemic, you know? Yeah, it's it's kind of critical infrastructure now, isn't it? So it's the stories we tell about it and the role it should play in, in our lives and the decisions made about it are going to or should naturally be very different to what they were 10 years ago. And I guess it's hard to kind of 
in the you know in a matter of what less than a decade really go yeah. from like you say inconsequential applications and yeah. gadgets tools to kind of critical infrastructure yeah this is why i kind of resist the fang definition so much is those companies are not the same right so if you think about like the pipes of the internet like you know, you have a company like Google who basically have captured knowledge in lots of ways. And so much of what they've done is, is for free for us. And that's an, that's incredible. At the same time, that means they have captured knowledge. You know, there's there's the kind of the, the Googles that I think focus on the kind of knowledge thing. There's the kind of Apples who basically, you know, ultimately are a product company. And I think a luxurious product company at that. But then you have like the Facebooks and, and from the global north or the kind of Western perspective, that feels like something you can opt in and opt out of. But actually in the global south, WhatsApp is the, you know, the pipes of the internet. Like phones get preloaded with Facebook when you buy them. So I think I think there's something even complicated in how we conceive these com- these these companies based on where we live in the world. That's where I think we need to be a lot sharper and smarter with our storytelling because these companies themselves, as we all know, they have massive teams doing this work from the inside. Teams that I would argue are underpaid and undervalued, but they're still doing this work, right? So um, I think we need to kind of understand just because this is how things are right now does not mean it has to be so. But at the same time, it's only in the last two or three years, I think that you've had really sharp journalism in this space. You know, for so long, tech journalism was pretty lightweight, I would say, having having dealt with a lot of tech journalists 10 years ago, it was very much like, this is launching, someone's raised money, new product, totally understandable. But I think it took, you know, we're now seeing these incredible threads of like tech labor reporters, people who are great at power analysis, you know, because of the complicated nature of this new industry or new sort of um, membrane, I guess, we need multiple ways of talking about it. And we need multiple stories that we can conceive about it. I also wanted to get you to talk a little bit about Ethical Explorer, which I guess is, it's not exactly sort of strictly storytelling, but it's a sort of framework that's sort of backed by a form of storytelling. Yes. Um, so yeah, so I, I was wondering if you could sort of explain kind of what it is, where the idea came from it and what what you what it's allowed other people to do as well. Yeah, and I'm, I'm so proud of this. The website is ethicalexplorer.org. This is a free toolkit that helps individuals and their teams basically make better decisions. And so part of this came from, you know, we talk to a lot of people who work in large and small tech about how they make choices. You know, how do they operationalize doing good work? And so in the last five years, we've seen loads of these sets of principles for like ethical AI come out. That's great. But ultimately, I'm more interested in what happens in the real world. Like, how does this work break when you have a deadline and you have to launch something? And we kept meeting these people that eventually developed, we developed the archetype, the ethical explorer around them, because they were the people in their teams that spoke up, that raised questions, that didn't feel like they had the answers. But often they were the people who were minoritized in that group. You know, they often were the people who were like, oh God, Suki is asking about Blar again. You know, and we were like, okay, how can we help this person open the door for a conversation? How can we give them a toolkit to help them bring their colleagues together on topics that I think a lot of people want to talk about, but don't feel like they have the they have the ability to do so. Um, you know, if you look at bias and AI, you know, I'm not an AI specialist. I might suppose because I don't have a PhD in it that I can't talk about it. But to be honest, if my company is, is working in the area, I have a duty of care to have some kind of opinion. So this is a set of eight themes from um, bias and AI to surveillance, to data control, to outsized power. And in each case, it's a very simple, you know, we gave a series of exercises that you could do from kind of solo contemplation to something that kind of fits in a team sprint to a kind of assessment of where a product is right now and where you want to go in the future. And really this toolkit is about simple education around what it means to think about surveillance and a set of questions to ask, where is your product now and where would you like it to be? And what's been amazing is it's been downloaded thousands and thousands and thousands of times. The last time we did a round of interviews with people who downloaded it, you know, I could probably get an email every single day from someone who's using it. And what's interesting is it's, it's, 
been used to set the entire value framework underneath new companies. Naldon, the founder of WeTransfer, emailed me last week about his new company, Huddle. And he said they used it um, as a team of six to understand, okay, what do we truly care about? Like, how do we set up this company? You know, WeTransfer is an incredible company founded on, you know, it's a B Corp, founded on very thoughtful principles. But he sort of said, I want to be even more intentional this time around in terms of how I build this company. You know, we've also heard from lots of people who work in large tech organizations that they were using this as a way to Trojan horse in something they cared about into their team. And so it's been used in a huge variety of ways as it was intended. You know, it was intended to be improved by those that use it. But what's been really interesting is two things. First is that we only had room for eight cards in the set. We gave a blank card and basically said, there is bound to be harms that we've not thought of that you're going to improve upon. But we had a real debate around sustainability and you know, just the whole framework of the environment. And we weren't able to include that in the first set, you know, partly because, you know, we did a lot of user feedback and we kept hearing from people, okay, outsized power feels more important right now. You know, monopolies are more critically important. And if you can get tech folk to talk about monopolies being not always a good thing, that's kind of a win. But I actually look back and I think we should have included it. It's an essential, you know, aspect to building an equitable company is thinking about the natural world. And the second thing is the most popular part of the toolkit has been very simple, but we spent two pages of the of the introductory guide talking about language you might use to introduce this at your work. That's been the, the part that's been most appreciated is I think people felt like they had to kind of justify introducing this work in their day job. They felt like it was emotional labor. They felt like it was minoritizing them further and we wanted to free them from that. So a very simple toolkit um, from our side, comparatively easy to do. Uh, you know, obviously informed by a lot of experts, a lot of people who gave their time and energy to kind of help us make it good. But I'm really proud of it. What area of tech do you think needs it the most right now? Where are you most interested in seeing ethical and responsible tech considerations happen urgently? I mean, I think it's very hard to argue that in the last year, all data became health data, right? So how I move around the world, you know, particularly for me having moved countries last year, like I think there is a lot of choices being made right now. Like governments had to do their best last year. And actually I think many governments in the West did okay to be to be decided in time. But I think there's a lot being chosen, being decided right now around kind of COVID passports that have deep and troubling implications for our future freedom. And there's a lot of trade-offs that have to get made. Like how should how should governments think about safety? How do they balance that with the the the, the needs of businesses to make money, of people to want to travel and go and see their relatives in other countries? You know, when we talk about holidays, we always forget people who have people, you know, their parents who live in a different country, that's not a holiday. It's exactly, it's, it's, it's something I think about a lot is how it always gets framed in the UK press as all selfish holiday makers. And you're like, no, if anyone has, you know, London is like the epicenter of people with parents all over the world. So I, I would, I would argue that the teams that are working between public and private around COVID and our safety, whether it's the rollout of vaccines and how that information gets communicated, whether it's how we think about opening up countries and how we think about COVID passports. To me, that area right now is critically important. And there's been some really powerful case studies in the last year of how to do it well and how not to do it well. And I hope that people in those roles have the space to kind of really consider what's best for the long term as well as the short term. So we don't have too much longer left, but I've got a few more questions I want to ask you. So I wanted to ask you something that I think we've, we've sort of touched on a bit earlier. And it's something that I've been thinking about quite a bit. And I think it came up in a seminar you did with um, Ada Lovelace. Oh, Institute. yeah, that was a great chat. Yeah, it's kind of uh, and it's something we spoke about before recording as well. So this kind of idea about building bridges between sort of different aspects of tech. So, yes, startups, industry, but also government activists, yeah. academia and research like how how do you sort of think we can speak the same language or how, how can we kind of go about that I guess I think this is kind of one of the golden problems of our time right is that 
you know, we all live in society. And if you look at tech criticism, for example, much of the sharpest criticism came from academia. Like until, you know, like if you look at Alondra Nelson, Sophia Noble, Ruha Benjamin, like, you know, but because those folks were not speaking tech friendly language, I don't think tech learns about a lot of these criticisms until really recently. That's, I think, where a lot of these tensions come from is that I believe that a lot of these groups want the same goal. They want responsible tech. They want a uh, they want a better tech ecosystem. And I think to get there, it will take all of us working together. So, you know, a couple of our most successful grantees have really worked to bring a couple of groups together. So, for example, Sophia Noble and the Center for Urgent Internet Inquiry, you know, she's an academic with a very strong focus on kind of socializing this work. So what we funded with her is a filmmaker in residence for the year to take her incredibly important and her team's incredibly important research and make it into kind of cultural artifacts. You know, I think Social, di- social Dilemma was very useful in kind of mainstreaming the harms of big tech, but it really privileged a certain voice that I think doesn't really represent tech as it kind of is now. And so in her case, it's really about research plus culture equals mass market kind of switching on. For another example, Coworker, you know, this is a, an organization that's really helped many industries learn how to become activists. Um, you know, and tech workers are quite new to this scene. Like I think I think we need to bring people together, whether it's urbanists and tech workers, as in the case of New Public, whether it's technologists and activists in the case of Coworker, there need to be more spaces to kind of bring different stakeholders together to kind of work out what a good future looks like. You know, I think tech kind of lacks a lot of the kind of institutions that have created space for debate don't exist in this field of work, right? So like, it's very, it's either based on university, which for someone like me who didn't go to like a Stanford gets othered from, or it's based in kind of company. And, you know, again, like I think it gets captured. And so I think there's a there's a need for a kind of institution that lives outside of universities, outside of large companies that brings people in tech together to help them ask these questions, but also build a new. So, you know, a couple of grantees that we have in the US, you know, one is a Stanford spin out led by Rob Reich. That's basically an evening class around tech ethics and public policy designed to bring tech workers together with like very different groups to kind of collectively learn. Another one is Logic School, this incredible organization that I'm a massive fan of. You know, they, they have a magazine that I love that has a very strong... Um, their current issues on the commons, the next one is on kids, but their evening classes around the theme of creative protest. So our hope is that through funding these kind of microstructures, they're quite small scale right now, but it's really about building community. You know, you look at like London and Berlin and Tel Aviv, you know, three of Europe's big startup cities and a big asset they have is their density. You know, when I was running campus in East London, I couldn't walk around Old Street without bumping into someone that I knew. That was incredibly beneficial. But having lived in Silicon Valley, you know, you're driving 30 miles to get coffee. It's like a very different thing. And money buys people the ability to kind of shut themselves off in these gated communities. Like it's a very, it's a very different kind of ecosystem. And I think, I think when we think about building, I don't want to say just solidarity, because I think it's more than it's about more than just pushing back. I think we need to build these kind of spaces for people to come together to build shared language that resonates with all of us and to kind of work out a path forwards. Because to my mind, all of us are working for the same thing, but we're perhaps doing it from different perspectives. And I think any good change involves all kinds of levers being pulled and we need to work together to kind of determine what we want and how to get there faster. Yeah, I guess it's kind of, yeah, like you say, having those spaces. And I think in a way, tech has sort of been detrimental to those spaces, right? They've, you've got walled gardens, those spaces, like public spaces, private spaces, yeah. quite a, it's kind of a weird, a weird sort of, it's quite, well, it's, it's a, quite uh, hard to have those sort of public spaces. It's kind of a tension, right? Because I think particularly for me, having yeah. run communities online and offline, on the one hand, any good community has certain rules around how you behave there. But at the same time, if you create rules, often that does create some kind of walled garden where it's harder for new people to kind of come in and join. And I think, you know, I'm quite fascinated by Reddit as a whole because it's one of the internet's OG communities for better or for worse. And you find pockets of Reddit, they're incredible. 
and you find pockets of Reddit that totally suck, you know, and for, you know, in all kinds of ways, right? So the best communities on there are welcoming to new people. There is a very clear set of shared purpose. You know, there's a very clear set of like, this is, this is how you engage. But I think it's building up those kind of spaces takes thought and care and time. And it's exactly like the real world. You'd never run a breakfast and expect every single person to kind of share openly in the first minute. That's not going to happen. It, it, you know, it takes time to kind of build trust. Cool. So just to end, like two really quick questions just about so anything you're thinking about or doing over the next 12 months, but also people and the things that are like inspiring and sort of driving you right now, I guess. There's loads I can't talk about right now, but I guess some a few themes that I'm kind of fascinated by at the moment. I think one has to be we're in the middle of this mass shift in how people think about work. You know, I think I think I don't know if you've seen this in your peer groups, but I'm seeing a lot of friends leave their jobs and go do something entirely different. And I think workers in tech are totally at risk of this because ultimately to our earlier conversation, increasingly work is not as purposeful as it used to be. Tech is getting criticized. The systems do not work for many of us who, if we don't look like the bosses, I think there is this really interesting renegotiation of the social contract happening right now. And I think smart bosses need to get ahead of that and think about how to meet this moment. And again, I come back to Basecamp so much because it's like, okay, we held these leaders up on a pedestal for a long time. And now we've seen they don't meet the moment anymore. So I think I'm thinking about how leaders can keep listening. I'm thinking about how we either need nobody on pedestals or everybody on pedestals. We need to kind of celebrate experimentation in a way that doesn't hero those doing experimenting. So I think I think that's a core challenge of, you know, you look at like the Steve Jobs on a magazine cover and, and having had friends who work directly for him, not a great boss. So I think we need to work out, okay, who are the leaders that we want to look to right now? And maybe their peers. And I, I love that. I think that's far smarter. I am super excited by you know, whether it's Trillium uh, with Google kind of pushing back and kind of, you know, protecting their shareholder dollars by kind of raising the sacking of Margaret Mitchell and Tim Nicobrew at the Google shareholder meeting. I think there's a lot of power in group action, whether at large scale with Trillium or with small scale, like the Alphabet Worker Union. I think I think there's a lot of kind of collective action happening that's kind of exciting, which obviously has implications around ownership, both for startups and large companies. Like how do we think about more equitable ownership? People that inspire me right now, I just listened to a podcast with Claire Stapleton and Ifoma Azoma talking about silence no more. And that was a very inspiring conversation, particularly the section around we have to get practical on how we think about change. We have to do two things at once. We have to keep imagining big change and keep directly working towards small change because that's the only way change happens. Otherwise, change happens to us. We're not driving it. Um, I think that's something I have to keep remembering is often as a funder, you know, you feel a bit like, you know, your job at heart is to find amazing people and help them do their thing faster, you know, help them do their thing with more resources. So particularly for me now being newly back in Europe, I really would love to do an open shout out in this podcast setting. I, you know, I'm actively talking to loads of interesting European companies and there is so much great thinking happening here that I think the US needs to learn from. And so much of my work in the last year has been innately US focused. I feel like I've unbalanced myself and I need to kind of understand, okay, what, is, what does good tech look like in a UK context, in a French context, in a German context? Because it's different everywhere, right? Where is the best place for people to find you? Probably Twitter. I'm Sarah Drinkwater on Twitter. And I mostly read by DMs, but I do have a lot in backlog right now. But also email um, sdrinkwater at amidyard.com. I'm very easy to get hold of as a whole. And I think in general, we... We as a team are always looking for allies in this work. It's going to take a lot of us to work on this problem. It's kind of a big problem and a very hard and exciting one for those of us that like hard problems. So um, thank you for having me. So that's about it for this week's episode. Once again, thank you to Sarah for talking to us and thank you as well for listening to what we talk about when we talk about tech. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. 
Remember, you can check out our earlier episodes on our website, which is talkabouttechpodcast.com. This was actually our 20th episode, so there's plenty of things there to listen to. And whether you just want to dip in and out and find things that are relevant to you, or whether you want to listen from the start and take in all our episodes, yeah, let us know what you think. Please send us a message. Uh, You can do that via Twitter. If you haven't already, you can follow us at underscore talkabouttech. You can follow me, as I said at the start. I am at Rich G. Gould. And Jennifer's handle is at JK Riggins. But yeah, like I said, that's about it for this week. We hope you enjoyed the episode. We really enjoyed making it. And we really enjoyed chatting to Sarah. So until next time, goodbye.